we affirm that. We, our lives, everything we've got is yours. And we submit this time to you. I thank you so much that you, you let imperfect people cry out to a perfect God and you hear us and you care and we recognize, Holy Spirit, that you're here this morning and I invite you to have your way with this time, with every bit of it. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, man, um, myself and 34 men from our church missed you last weekend. We appreciate those of you who made it possible for us to go, watched kids, took care of responsibilities so that we could go up the mountain and meet with our God. We had a wonderful time. And, you know, I'm so grateful for Chris stepping up and holding down the fort and doing a great job there as well. So glad to be back. For those of you who are, are kind of jumping in here midstream, maybe, maybe you're visiting today or you've been missing for the last few weeks, we are in a series that we're calling Transitions because we as a church are in a transition. And so we felt like it would be fitting for us to, to look through the Bible and particularly in some sections of the Old Testament that we don't go to a lot and go, okay, how did the people of Israel handle transition? What are some things that we can learn from them, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Because there's some wonderful lessons we can learn regardless of whether they did it right or not. And today what I want to do is I want to dive into a section of scripture that's probably very familiar with us. It's one of the most famous transitions in history between the transition from King Saul to King David. But I want to look at this from a different perspective than we normally approach it from. Today I want to look at this from the perspective of the man who already sat on the throne, King Saul. And just try to get to, to walk a couple of miles in his shoes and say, what would it have been like for him, particularly on the day when his story intersected with David's story? So I want you to picture this for a moment. It's a warm spring day in the Valley of Elah. There's a a, a nice, gentle breeze blowing through the valley that that's kind of shifting the long grass. And there's some bees that are buzzing around collecting pollen from the wild mustard flowers that grow on the hillsides, painting these beautiful hills in splashes of yellow. It'd be a serene picture if it weren't for the two armies that are encamped on opposite hills with the valley running down the middle, ready for battle. On the one side, you have the army of Israel, consisting of every able-bodied man over the age of 20 that has answered the king's call to arms. And on the opposite hill, you have the Philistines, clad in leather armor, gripping spears and swords, and just itching for a fight. And at the front of the Israeli army is King Saul, standing resplendent in his commander's uniform, straight back, chin up, arms behind his back, staring at the enemy. And now an outside perspective, if somebody were just coming upon this scene that day, they would look at this man and the way he held himself and they would say, now here is a leader of men. Here is a man worth following. But if you looked beneath the armor and if you looked beneath the stoic exterior, you would find a man who is consumed with fear. This isn't Saul's first battle. Far from it. He's led the people of Israel in many, many battles before. But he has never encountered an enemy quite like this one. He's never had an enemy that's gotten so into his head that his eyes are dark-rimmed because he has not been sleeping. 
And every night he's tossing in his bed. Fearful of when dawn will break and a new day will start. And so as Saul stands there, watching the enemy formation, trying once again to count how many men are arrayed against him, a shiver runs up his spine as his eyes fall upon the one, the only enemy that counts, his nemesis. And even from the back of the Philistine army, that giant that they're calling Goliath stands head and shoulders above all the other. And and the the enemy formation separates and Goliath saunters down the middle of the aisle. And once he gets to the front, he doesn't stop there. Oh, no, he never does. And he keeps walking down into the middle of the Valley of Elah, down into no man's land, alone and utterly unafraid. And he plants his feet, puffs his chest out. And with that sneer that he has worn for 40 days in a row, he begins to survey the Israeli troops. And then, as he's done so many times before, he, he throws down his challenge. Send me a man, one-on-one, champion to champion. Let us battle for this. Winner take all. Sorry for those of you who blew out your eardrums there. I didn't warn you up there. His words are like a spear to Saul's heart because he knows. He knows that Goliath is talking to him. What's worse, he knows that his men know that he's talking to him. Even now, as he stands there, straight-backed, stoic-faced, he can feel the eyes of his men on him, just wondering when he's going to step up and be the leader that the prophet Samuel said he would be. And as he stands there, rooted in place by fear, the words of Samuel that he spoke over him the day that Saul was chosen to be the leader of his people run through his mind. Only now they sound more like an indictment than an affirmation. See this man before you, he said. There's no one in this kingdom like him. And Saul knows. Saul knows that God chose him in part because of his stature. Because he, like Goliath, was head and shoulders taller than everybody else in the nation. And when God says you're the biggest and the best, you're the biggest and the best. And so Goliath's words are not directed at the army. Oh no, they're directed at him. He's calling him out. But what is truly rooting him in place, what is truly paralyzing him with fear, is that Saul knows deep down that he's not up to the task. And he would never voice this. But secretly, he hopes that one of his men would defy orders and break ranks and accept this challenge. Anybody to take the yoke off of his neck. But nobody moves. Nobody. Just like all the other days before, nobody steps in to save him from his own private recurring shame. And after what feels like an eternity, Goliath, with one last sneer, turns his back 
on the army of Israel upon Saul. And he begins to saunter back up through the ranks of Philistines. No doubt to go and come up with more jeers to throw at him the next day. And the Philistine army begins to follow suit, breaking ranks and going back to their tents, laughing at Saul. Now, Saul knows he should be mad. I mean, they're not, this, this uncircumcised, unwashed Philistine, this pagan, is not only mocking him and his army, but he's mocking his God. Yeah, he should be mad. But secretly, he's, he's relieved. Because for one more day, it's over. He gets a reprieve for one more day. And so Saul gives a motion to his commanders and they give permission for the, the army of Israel to break ranks and to head back to their tents. Now Saul wants nothing more than to turn tail and run to his tent, crawl under his skins and cry away the shame. But he's got to save face what little bit of it he has left. And so, straight-backed and chin up, he begins to walk slowly back to his tent, pretending he doesn't hear the whispers of his men, pretending he doesn't see their stares of disappointment, that he is not the commander they thought he would be. And he knows deep down that for yet another night, he's not going to be sleeping very well. You know, as a kid, I never fully understood how it is that a king would allow an untested shepherd boy to fight the most important battle that there was. I mean, you basically have an enemy champion, the heavyweight champion of the Philistines saying, let's go man to man. Whoever wins, the other army becomes their slave. And who would think it would be a great idea to say, hey, this kid here says he's willing to do it. Let's send him in with a stone and a sling. Good idea. And yet as an adult, as I've walked with the weight of responsibility on my shoulders, as I've, as I've looked into the eyes of people who look to me for provision and protection and strength, whether it's my wife or my kids or even my church family, I've begun to understand why Saul might have been willing to to let somebody else fight his battle. Because it's paralyzing to, to fear letting people down who rely on you. It's also paralyzing when your entire identity is wrapped up in your success to do anything that could thwart that. To do anything that could cause people to question whether you are truly as capable as you have led them to believe. And so when... David says, I'll fight the battle. Saul is only too willing to give it over to him because anybody's neck is better than his neck in that point. And you know how the story goes. The shepherd boy walks out with nothing more than a stone and a sling. And the giant roars his war cry. And the stone flies, the giant falls, and a hush falls over the entire valley. And then, in a moment of unbelievable ecstasy, the Israelite army rushes the field, unbelieving that they have won, but now they're going to go rout the Philistines. And this whole time, here's Saul, who does what any good leader does in this situation. 
He takes credit for it. I knew it. This is the guy. I saw it in him. The moment he walked up, there was something special about this kid. That's my hire right there. Oh, yeah. And David's appearance on the scene is like a dream for Saul. Because it not only takes the yoke of of responsibility off of his shoulders, but everything that he gives David to do, he begins to succeed at. Saul gives him command over uh, some of his troops. And when he goes back into new battles, David is successful. And so he gives him more responsibility and he's successful again. And he finds that everything he gives David to do, David does it well. This is a young eagle that's rising up in the ranks. And things are good because it looks good upon him. He's the one who hired him. He's the one who gave him his shot. But at some point, David's success crosses over from being a benefit to being a liability. And what I want us to do this morning is I want to look at the moment when Saul's perspective of David's success changes forever. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And if you're up there, I'm sorry, I'm going to move around down here a little bit because I'm feeling, I've got like wandering feet today, so I don't want to fall off the edge again. So I apologize if you can't see me up there. All right. First Samuel chapter 18. Let's begin in verse 5. If you find yourself in the Psalms or Proverbs, hook a left because you're not there far enough. Go past First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. You'll eventually get to First Samuel. So we read in in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5, whatever mission that Saul sent David on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So some time has passed between that first battle when David killed the giant and this point that we're about to read when they are now going back through the cities of Israel. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And in this moment, Saul is faced with a decision that just about every leader at some point in their tenure has to face. One of his young eagles, somebody that he put into a position of power, has given the opportunity, has met with such success that it's now beginning to eclipse his own. What are you going to do? Now, if Saul were a secure leader at this point, then he would have thrown the e-brake on his chariot, right? hopped out, walked to the back of the procession wherever David is and said, son, get down. Come here. No, 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 seriously, come here. Thrown his arms around his shoulder, walked him back up to the front of the procession, says, hop up. No, you're riding with me now. Because from now on, we're the 1100 or 11,000 club, right? Come on. We're, we're together. Everything we do, we're doing it in lockstep because we are better together than we are apart. That would have been if Saul was a secure leader. But we know that he's not. In fact, so many of Saul's choices throughout his career were made out of insecurity rather than out of security. And I I don't think I'm stretching it too much to suggest that just about every leader has within them some insecurity. 
And it raises its head up every once in a while, right? And for Saul, when those people began to sing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, his inner insecurity was awoken. And it began to make the decision for him. And I will confess that I've got this same inner insecurity. I think just about every leader does. It doesn't come up all the time, but sometimes it does. And it came up literally this week. I was coming down off the mountain high from what God had done up there, still just floating, and it was just such a wonderful weekend. And one of the first things out of my wife's mouth was, hey, you have got to listen to Chris's message. It was so good. <laughs> and in that moment, it's like, ah, it's like I hit that, my insecurity funny bone, right? Ah. And in that moment, there's a battle in my heart between my flesh and my spirit. My flesh wants to ride that pale horse of insecurity all the way into the ground. I want to start pumping my wife for, okay, yeah, but was there anything that you would have done differently if you were him? You know, know, give me something that can somehow knock him down a couple of pegs so that I don't have to feel like maybe some people enjoy his teaching better than mine. Meanwhile, my spirit's going, yes, yes. Because why wouldn't I want my church family to have the very best teaching they could regardless of whose mouth it comes out of. And why wouldn't I want my brother to succeed at something that God is very obviously gifted in that? But you see this battle take place. And this battle is taking place in Saul's heart in this moment when he hears the women singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. But as the story continues, we realize that he doesn't respond in a healthy manner. He responds in an insecure way. Verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. As he's riding there at the front of the procession, as people are singing his praises, and he hears that this young kid back here is getting more praise than he is, And then he looks back and he sees David's face. David's enjoying this. Who does he think he is? I put him into that position. How dare he? And I think one of the most telling verses in this entire thing is Saul's words there. What more can he get but the kingdom? Because that reveals that something has changed in Saul's heart. Remember, Saul was the first king of Israel, chosen by God out of obscurity. I kid you not, when he was chosen, they go, where is he? Where is Saul? We've chosen him, where is he? Oh, he's hiding in the baggage cart. Apparently he was insecure from the beginning. They finally get him up there. This is the man, he's going to lead. And between that time and this moment, Saul has gone from recognizing, I don't deserve this, to thinking, I do deserve this. And Saul's perspective of his power and his position has gone, he he looks at more as his right rather than as God-given responsibility. What's more, he has begun to look at the kingdom as his kingdom rather than remembering it's God's kingdom. God put him into position of power and he can just as easily take him out. And so as people begin to sing the praises of David and he recognizes that it's impinging upon his own focus, we're going to put a kibosh on this thing immediately. Secure leaders 
are the kind of people who know who they are and they know what God has called them to do. Because of this, they don't feel the need to constantly prove themselves over and over and over. They don't feel like they have to run on that hamster wheel of performance. They don't feel like they need to garner everybody's approval. They don't have to perform for it like I've done so much of my life. Because they can rest in who they are and what God has made them to do. They both recognize their strengths, God bless you, but they also recognize their weaknesses and they're okay with that. And so they surround themselves. In fact, they they actively seek people who are strong in areas that they are weak to augment their weakness because that makes their organization better. And because they're willing to do that, they tend to have a lot of other strong leaders within their orbit, which is not only beneficial for them, but is beneficial for the organization. And why do they have so many strong leaders around them? Because they're willing to share both the responsibility as well as the affirmation. Insecure leaders, on the other hand, have a tendency to find their identity and their security in what they do and how people respond to them. And they are literally on a hamster wheel of, got to prove it. It doesn't matter how good the men's retreat was. The moment I get up here, now I got to prove it again. I got to prove I'm good. I got to reassert my whatever. This kind of leader doesn't have room in their chariot for others to shine. Can't share that because they need to be the ones who get the affirmation. They need to be the ones that people go, wow, you are so good. You're so wise. You're such a good leader. If, if they feel that the most important thing is being a manager of people, that's what it means to be a leader, then they've got to be the best manager of people. If they think that teaching is important, then they've got to be the best teacher, the most eloquent, the most insightful. If it's casting vision, well, then they've got to be the ones whose words ultimately are the things that that drive home. They've got to be the one one with the idea that people finally go with. Because they are insecure, because they cannot share space in their chariot, insecure leaders tend to push other strong leaders away because they're a challenge to their comfort and their confidence. And it not only hurts them, but it hurts the organization that they lead because they can't have other strong leaders around them. And for Saul, he was very much an insecure leader. In fact, he shows it very strongly. Jump down to verse 15 for a moment. I think this, this verse pretty much sums up what it means to be an insecure leader. When Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. I have written in my Bible right next to that verse. Do I fear others' success? Do I fear when somebody affirms Lee or affirms Chris or affirms somebody else? Do I fear when somebody else gets credit for something perhaps I had my hands in or for something I had an idea about? I would ask you the same question. Because we all have some leadership in some area of our lives. In your home. In your workplace. In places that you frequent. Are you okay with other people getting affirmation? Are you okay if your spouse is affirmed for something that you feel you're really good at? Are you okay when somebody else gets the nod and gets the, the, the bonus or gets... 
elevated in their position. Are you okay with that? Or is that a knock against you in your mind? How you answer that question shows a lot about your leadership. Shows a lot about, I should say more so, the security, the foundation upon which your leadership derives out of. Now the really sad thing in this story is that there was a leader, a pagan leader, some 800 years before, who got this way better than Saul got this. He was a pharaoh of Egypt, and he understood what Saul didn't understand, that good leaders allow space for others to to shine. And so this pharaoh was having some bad dreams of his own. They were keeping him up at night. And he heard through some of his advisors that there was this young prisoner who was serving out a life sentence for a, a crime he didn't commit. And they said, you might want to talk to the boy because he can interpret dreams. This young man, his name is Joseph. And when he was younger, he was the most favorite son of his father. Of 12 boys, he was the favorite. He knew it because he got this coat of many colors that showed his status. He had the coat, but he was lacking character. So much so that when he began to have dreams that one day perhaps his brothers would bow down to him, he couldn't hold on to those himself. He had to go tell his brothers. He had to go shove their nose in it. Guess what, guys? One day you're going to bow down to me. And God's thinking, this guy needs slavery. And sure enough, that's what happens. He gets sold into slavery. And then... He gets accused of a crime he didn't commit. And he gets thrown into prison. And in that time, he loses the coat. He loses the favored status. He hits rock bottom. And in the process, he finds humility and character. Sometimes we need to hit rock bottom. Sometimes we need to have the coat stripped away from us. The title, the job. Stripped away from us, we have to hit rock bottom in order for us to find character. And so, when this young man Joseph is cleaned up and shaved up and put up in front of the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh says, okay, I hear you, you can interpret dreams. Joseph doesn't go, yeah, I can. His response is, I can't, but my God can. And then Pharaoh says, all right, here are the dreams I have. And he starts laying them out. And Joseph interprets them for him because God gives him insight into this. And Pharaoh not only gets that from him, but Joseph also tells him, now here's what I would suggest you do. And he begins to give him some wise counsel, wiser even than the other counselors that Pharaoh has around him. And he says, is there anybody in this kingdom like this young man? Not only does God speak to him, but he gives wise counsel and he's humble. And so Pharaoh says, all right, Joseph, I'm going to give you an opportunity to prove yourself. I may wear the crown, but everything else that I have in my kingdom is at your disposal to do as you see fit. I want you to lead. I want you to implement these things that you've come up with. And the last 10 chapters of Genesis begin to describe the benefit that Pharaoh's wisdom in allowing this young rising eagle to to have space to fly in his kingdom. We begin to see the benefit it had not only on the people of Egypt, and, and it looked good for Pharaoh, given this kid his opportunity, but it also boded well for God's purpose and his plans through his people, which is why it is so sad 
looking at how Pharaoh, a pagan king, responded. And then we look at Saul, God's chosen leader of his people, and we start going, man, you just don't get it. Because you were okay having a young eagle in your organization when it looked good for you, when people were saying, wow, Saul is such a good commander to let this young kid fight that battle for him. Man, I I can't believe he's got people like that around him. But the moment people start affirming David over Saul, the moment his success begins to eclipse Saul's success, that's the beginning of the end of their relationship. And he has to go out of his way to try to silence the kid, ostracize him, get rid of him. Even he tries to kill him a number of times because he cannot handle the competition. He's that insecure. And as I've been walking for the last couple of weeks, trying to walk in Saul's shoes and understand what motivated him, it has made me appreciate more and more the leadership that we have had in Lee over these last 15 years, but more specifically for myself, the last seven years that I've been here. Because even before he started looking for an associate pastor, he knew that this was not his church. This is God's church. And he knew he was simply a steward of what is God's, that he was an interim pastor. And so he sought to hire and train up somebody that one day, if it was God's will, could take from him the responsibility that God had entrusted to him. And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like this has all been rainbows and puppy dogs, right? This hasn't always been easy because we, as leaders have insecurity within us. And I guarantee you, there were times when Lee was watching my leadership and going, man, I could do so much better of the job if I were doing that. (laughs) Did I mention how humble he is? The truth of the matter is he's absolutely right. In many ways, he could have done a better job, and yet he was willing to let this young eagle lead and to learn. Sparrow. I'll take it. (laughs) Um, And I know that there were probably moments when Lee's insecurity got triggered, when when that funny bone of, (gasps) when somebody said, wow, and affirmed me for something, and he goes, there was that moment of going, well, what do they think about my leadership? I know for myself that I felt that time and time again. People go, wow, Lee is such a strong leader in this. He is such a good teacher. You have a lot you can learn from him. And I'm going, what are, you th- what are you saying about me? Like, ow! And yet, the thing that I have appreciated about Lee, probably more than anything about him, is that he has understood from the very beginning that this is not his church. And it is not about him getting his way. He led by submitting everything and saying, best idea wins. And at the end of the day, what does God want? Because that's all that matters. And he's led in that way. And so the day that God said, Lee, It is time for you to step aside. He willingly handed the reins of his chariot into my hands and said, now you lead, kid. You're ready. Because he gave me space and time to grow. And so I'm grateful, Lee, for for your leadership. I'm grateful for your humility. I'm grateful for the gift you've given to this church and that you've given to me in leading the way you have and setting an example for all of us. And it's my prayer that I would continue to lead in the same heart that you have, recognizing that I am, this is not my church, this is God's church. I am a steward of what is his. 
and that this would be a place where young eagles or sparrows or whatever kind of bird you want to be could be raised up, trained up, roost for a while, and then be prepared so that when God says, it's time, you're ready to fly. And you will be used by God, whether it's here or somewhere else. That is my prayer for here. I have one last thing I want to share. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And this is something I shared with the guys at the men's retreat on, um, on Saturday. Over my sabbatical in February, I was up there at the retreat center up in Palomar, and I, I, I was there with a couple of questions in mind. God, am I ready? And secondly, what do I need in order to be equipped to do what you're calling me to do in leaving this church? And I'll just paint the picture. I was, I was sitting on this log that had fallen over in the middle of the forest, out in, God, in what I call the Cathedral of Creation. These trees are 80, 90 feet tall, just kind of waving in the breeze. Beautiful. And I'm laying on a tree that had fallen over in a, in a storm not more than a week before because its roots were just too shallow to be able to withstand the wind and the rain. I said, God... Is there anything you want me to read? And he led me to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I have my phone, and I tend to do a lot of my devotions out of the CEV, the Contemporary English Version. So this is from it there. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. This is what I read. God is wonderful and glorious. So I pray that his spirit will make you become strong followers and that Christ will live in your hearts because of your faith. So stand firm and be deeply rooted in his love. And it was that if in that moment he took phosphorescent highlighter and that last word, be deeply rooted in his love. He said, keep in mind, I'm sitting on a tree that had fallen over in a storm because its roots were too shallow. I'm looking up at trees that withstood the same storm and were actually watered by it. And he's saying, Eric, as you step into this, You must remain rooted in me because if your roots are into anything else, if they are into the topsoil of circumstances or people's opinion of you or how things are going at the church or how well you're doing, then like this tree, when the storms come, because they will come, not if, when, then like this tree, you're going to topple. But if your roots go deep into the unchanging bedrock of my love for you, you abide in me and I in you, then like these trees that are still standing, they withstood the same storm. In fact, they were watered and nourished by it. If you will rest in me, then you will be able to to walk through anything. And so here's my challenge and my question for you this morning. Where are the roots of your identity? Where are the roots of your security? Are they in the ever-changing topsoil of your circumstances, your job performance, what people say about you, how many likes you get on a social media post, whatever? Are they into your job title because those can be taken? Are they into your financial status because that can change in a moment? Are they into the way you look? That can change in a moment. Or, Are they deeply rooted into the unchanging bedrock of God's love for you? Because how you answer that question makes all the difference. So, Father God, I pray that you would help us to rest securely in your love. Help us to know who we are, what you have called us to, 
And I pray that you would surround us with others who are strong and capable and competent where we are weak. May you have your way with us and may we live out of your love so that others can be can be invested in because at the end of the day you have called us to be your ambassadors and we can't do that if we're focused on ourselves. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. This song that we're going to 